You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. There are just so many different ways that you can get engaged. I'm not a physicist. I'm not an engineer, but yet I found a very fulfilling career in the sector and I would encourage any young woman who's interested to go for it. Perhaps the best way to enhance security and resilience is to reduce risks, including from being overly dependent on fossil fuels. For November 29th, 2023, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. This is our second show in the new format we piloted one year ago with episodes 186 and 187 about the energy transition in Vermont. Instead of exploring a particular topic with one guest who has a non-commercial perspective, as most of our shows so far have done, this new format aims to tell the stories about how the energy transition is proceeding in some of the places I'm visiting in my travels as a peripatetic podcaster. We tell these stories through interviews with multiple local experts, including those who are working in the energy sector. And because these shows are designed to be evergreen cameos about places, they have no news segment. We hope this new format will help to demonstrate how the unique challenges and opportunities in every place will determine its particular path through the energy transition and to highlight how the experiences of these places can inform energy transition efforts elsewhere. In time, I hope to tell these stories about places all over the world. This story is about Scotland. 26 years ago, on a wee island with just 65 residents off the west coast of Scotland, the seeds of a fascinating energy transition project were planted. That began a long process which ultimately made it possible for the island's inhabitants to eliminate dozens of small, loud, smelly, expensive, and unreliable diesel power generators and become the world's first community to launch an off-grid electric system powered by wind, water, and solar, all conceived and executed by the residents themselves. I think it's a truly inspirational story of an energy transition, and I've wanted to do a show about it ever since I first read about it in a BBC article years ago. So I'm very pleased to be able to share that story with you now. In mid-September, I traveled to the Isle of Egg. That's spelled E-I-G-G. It's about 15 miles off the west coast of Scotland, south of the Skye Peninsula. At 9 kilometers, or about 5.5 miles long from north to south, and 5 kilometers, or about 3 miles wide from east to west, it's one of the larger of what they call the small isles of the Scottish Inner Hebrides Islands. After an early morning 90-minute ferry ride over large waves rolling in from the Atlantic that pitched the ferry around and probably caused some to suffer from seasickness, which I'm happy to say has never bothered me, we landed at the Egg Pier. There, I tucked into a panini and a coffee from the Galmasdale Bay Cafe, the one cafe on the island, which is now housed in a new building that is very modern, bright, and welcoming. Thus fortified, I rented an e-bike from Egg Adventures in the adjacent shop so I could get around during my visit. Visitors are not allowed to bring cars onto the island, and for good reason. There isn't a refueling station on Egg, and about half of its narrow, single-lane roads are unpaved. You really wouldn't want tourists driving around on them. Egg Electric, as their homegrown electricity utility is known, was created 16 years ago. We'll hear all about it later on in this episode. But the creation of that utility wouldn't have been possible without another, very different transition that happened a decade earlier, in which the people of Egg bought back their land. So our story begins there. 
1997, the residents of Egg and some supporters formed a trust called the Isle of Egg Trust. They raised money and used it to buy back the island. Leslie Riddick, a veteran radio program broadcaster who has produced shows for BBC Two, Channel Four, Radio Four, and BBC Radio Scotland, and who now has her own podcast, was one of the people who helped form the trust and was one of its original trustees. She explained the history of Egg's ownership and why that was a critical step that ultimately led to the creation of Egg Electric. Egg, like really most of Scotland, has been owned by a series of private, usually absentee landowners. And that has meant that a lot of people, about a third of the island, were tenants. A third were crofters. Some people ironically say in Scotland that a croft is a piece of land surrounded by regulations. Um, (laughs) What it is, it's a small piece of land that you have sort of ownership of, but you can't sell. So it was designed in the late 1800s when people were being cleared out of Scotland completely willy-nilly. And there was a huge pushback to try to have some rights because there were none. And the Crofting Act came in 1886, and they created this sort of in-between solution, which was not to divide up the highlands and give everyone their own portion to own forever and pass on to their own people and sell if they want, but to kind of give people land that could not be taken off them and could be inherited but couldn't be sold on the open market so that it would roughly keep the population stabilised and keep prices low. So to an extent that has worked and that's where the most secure people in many places of the Highlands are these crofters. So Egg was a third crofters, a third tenants of the usually absentee landowner and a third of people outright owned their own house. So, I mean, it's a very unsatisfactory situation because most of the people who were tenants in fact, most of the people that were living there had terrible housing. And the tenants particularly were dependent on the landowner to do improvements, which never happened. So old people were living in houses with just cold water in very cold winters. They had windows that clattered and had to be held down by weights inside. It was single glazed. It was a tough sort of existence. And nobody could really move forward and improve things because they needed permission from someone who wasn't there and wasn't interested most of the time. So this built a head of steam up towards deciding to do something about it. And I was a trustee of this egg trust that finally bought the island. And the reason I was one of the first trustees is because I didn't live there and therefore could not be evicted. Because simply setting up a development trust would be enough to get you evicted. As it turned out, the final act that really pushed everything on was the last but one owner, Keith Schellenberg, threatening a family of six with eviction on Christmas Eve. I mean, bad timing. That brought the whole island together and that really focused people who were doubtful before there was no solution now but trying to buy the island themselves. He sold it to another crazy guy. He rapidly became the same, never turned up, didn't follow through with anything. So that was the absolute tin lid. If there was any doubters, then having one more landowner that fitted the bill, same old stuff, that persuaded people. So they finally raised, in a public appeal, they raised £1.56 million from the public. There was no government money in that at all. And they finally managed to buy the island from the liquidators when this character had defaulted on the loans that he'd taken out. All very complicated, but the point is they bought the island on the 12th of June, 1997. 
So that was kind of a big moment for Scotland. They had been preceded by a couple of other land buyouts where people had just got completely fed up and had done some of the same thing. But Egg was the first islanders in Scottish history to buy their island back from a laird. So that kind of encouraged a lot of people and it changed the whole map of the discussion about land ownership in Scotland. That's fascinating. And I guess there was also a fairly small grant, £17,000 from Highlands and Islands Enterprise, yeah? Out of 1.56 million, that hardly even registers. And that, I think, if it was there, that was for some of the legal stuff that happened to complete the deal. So how did they, I mean, as I understand it, there was about 65 islanders at the time the trust was set up in 1996. So how did they manage to raise 1.5 million just amongst themselves? Well, not amongst themselves. I happened to be the deputy editor of the Scotsman newspaper at the time. So I can tell you they got quite a lot of front pages. Really, the appeal went right over Scotland and beyond. I was sitting in people's kitchens when the post bag came in, and really, people were in tears opening it with one pound sent from a wee granny somewhere in a poor part of Glasgow saying, Wow. You know, I have no hope except you. Wow. Wow. So it was very powerful. <laughs> and then lots of people from abroad. You would be there and somebody would appear and they'd contributed to the appeal. So everybody had to sit and kind of (laughs) take them in, give them tea, give them something to eat, you know, as a thank you. But like there was a lot of people. So that was a lot of cups of tea that went on for years. People coming and sort of just wanting to make contact. Wow. So that really, I mean, I can understand the effort involved in doing that, but that also creates a really substantial sense of community and sort of common endeavor, doesn't it? Yes. So these guys, I think they surprised themselves. And sometimes I suppose at the beginning, it's kind of intimidating really, because you're just normal people and suddenly you're being sort of treated like superheroes and you're still just normal people. You're going to make mistakes, you know, but The thing that was apparent to me right from the beginning was how intuitively smart these guys were about how to manage things. So, for example, when the trust was actually formed, there was various trusts. That was on the go from 1992 onwards, really. It took years to get this thing together, not one year. But they would have meetings on the island and inevitably some people don't turn up. You know, they're not interested, they're bored, they've got something else to do, they don't like you. And so what they did was between the kind of little board, they divided the island up and they went and visited the people who didn't appear. Not in a kind of heavy way, but just to say, look, you know, it's fine that you weren't there, but this is what we discussed. These were the kind of things we decided. We just wanted you to know. And that was what they did. So the amount of effort that was, was enormous, really. And these are difficult conversations, but the determination was no one would be able to say they didn't know what was happening because no one cared. So that kind of stuff really helped knit things together and it kept a lot of negativity at bay. Okay, so they raised the money, they bought the island back from this absentee landlord. Then how did they go about allocating the properties to the residents? Well, that was, again, very interesting. I mean, a lot of them, essentially nobody moved because they just stayed in the houses they were in. But one of the first things that happened was setting up a building collective because the standard of housing was so appalling and it just needed somebody to sign a lease. I mean, the previous landowners could have done that over the previous 25 years, but they didn't. So it needed just to have a proper lease to qualify for housing improvements. So obviously Mm. the new owners being the people themselves signed the leases and bingo, 
in came money for housing repairs. The next question is, who's going to do it? So the men, mostly, on the island formed a kind of cooperative. There was one builder. He could have cleaned up. He could have been the boss. He could have paid them practically nothing. They would have pretty much had to do it. And he would have been a lonely man. So mm. they decided not to do that and to have pretty much equal shares with Simon just getting a double share because he was the builder. And they learnt. They learnt how to do it together. And they also created a distinctive kind of housing on egg because they also had planned. They don't have mains electricity there. So they've built houses that don't have utility rooms because most people don't have washing machines. You know, the white goods that everybody regards as being essential for life had not happened on egg because they were all running on diesel generators and you didn't waste energy on anything when you were paying for it and it was that expensive. So yeah. they carried that over into the new egg because by this stage, we're in a green transition. They're a very kind of energy conscious and saving bunch of people. So they started to build houses that were really quite different. And of course, if there were problems with the house, the beauty of it was that you didn't have to wait forever to get the builder to come back to the island. They live next door to you. So let's just say there was some vigorous feedback if there were aspects that didn't work. And they've really got very, very good at building now. And then the allocations, the first house that they'd really done up had several people that wanted it. One was an older lady who lived on the mainland and had been an islander on egg. So there was be a lot of sentimental backing for the idea that this lady could finally come home. But she would probably have used it as a second home, to be honest. Um, there were two 18-year-old young women who were daughters of islanders. And there was one older guy, George, a son of one of the big families, who was a farmer. Now, in all the normal pecking orders, the old lady would have come top, George would have come second, and the girls would be at the bottom. But knowing that it's young women leaving that depopulate places, and George was willing to put up with his appalling housing <laughs> because he had a job, it's the girls that would have gone. So they gave the first house to the two girls sharing it, which was, again, a small thing, but it was just brilliant because they became very strong friends. They stayed on the island, they're still on the island, and they have families on the island keeping the school open. And the old lady would have used it as a second home, so she just comes to visit occasionally. You know, as they improved each home, most people were just already in the home, and they just said, thank you very much. At long last, I've got hot water. Hallelujah, you know. So that was for right. most people. They were the same tenants, but now they just got a decent house to live in. The big next change was that they basically gave land for free to young people to build houses on. Nobody else does this in Scotland. What they were actually doing, because, you know, there's some laws about this, they were technically deferring payment. This was, again, very clever. If someone who's been given land for free and has built a house on it decides to then sell that house on the open market. At that point, when they sell it, they must pay the full price of the land back to the Isle of Egg Trust, who then give it to another person. And how is that value of the land determined? It's a market price at the point of sale. I mean, to be honest, okay. not too many of these. I mean, it actually acts as a bit of a deterrent as well. But the thing is, the first set of people who got those bits of land were mostly the children who'd been living, like George, just in an appalling, basically in a cattle shed. 
So these guys urgently needed rehousing. But again, they did self-building with some of the other men that had been repairing houses. And they've learned to build houses themselves. They've got straw bale houses. They're not made of straw bales, but they use straw bale insulation, which is now a fairly proven technique on the island. They use yeah. local timber that takes the costs of construction way down, like 40% of what it would be to import. So yeah. you can get a two-bedroomed house with a lovely view on egg for £40,000, which you can wow. translate. It's extraordinary. This process of taking back ownership of the island, reallocating ownership of the property to the people who actually live there, and creating a kind of self-determination that didn't exist before, created a real sense of community esprit de corps, which set the stage for a 10-year plan to make a more sustainable life on Egg. Thus newly empowered, the residents of Egg set out to rebuild and improve their infrastructure. They set up community workshops, who contributed sections to a comprehensive plan designed to help Egg transition to more of a circular economy, which made them more self-sufficient. There were groups who focused on infrastructure, on energy, on decarbonizing heating for buildings, on community engagement strategies designed to increase participation, and so on. That process went on for years. And so, following the community buyout in 1997, the people of Egg made serious upgrades to their infrastructure. As Leslie mentioned, they renovated houses. At the pier where the ferry from the mainland comes in, at a place called Ann Lambrig, there used to be just a concrete shed which had no heat and no windows. Now that building has been improved and now houses Egg Adventures, where I rented my e-bike. And next to it, there is now a collection of three new, modern, well-insulated, bright and airy buildings featuring a new and expanded shop with a very decent selection of food and beverages, a tea room, cafe and bar serving hot meals, and a wash house featuring a public toilet, showers and laundry facilities. Another building is now under construction there, a large green shed which will be home to the local Coast Guard team, a wood boiler that will serve the whole complex, and offices for new businesses. Elsewhere on the island, they built a craft shop and other community spaces. They created a tree nursery to raise local native trees from seed and start restoring their woodland. They created a high-speed community broadband company. They renovated the primary school and installed a solar system on it. They built a new roll-on, roll-off pier and created a health center for egg and the other small isles. They planted a community orchard near Ann Lambrig that produces fresh fruit and nuts, including a lot of apples, which members of the community can harvest as needed. There's even a box of apples outside the shop where anyone is welcome to take some for free. It has now been two and a half decades of massive upgrading and improvement that would have never been possible had the people of Egg not managed to buy back the island and take its future into their own hands. A key player in the creation of the Egg Heritage Trust and the transformation of the island is Lucy Conway, an experienced project manager who, among other things, helped deliver the Scottish Government's Island Communities Fund, a £2.6 million investment to deliver a green economic recovery in Scotland's island communities. I asked Lucy how she remembered the process of the transformation. I think the Clean Energy Transition Agenda sort of came, came out of all of the work that Egg's been doing for many years, whether that be in the Big Green Challenge or in consulting for firstly the creation of Egg Electric, but also then any expansion. So it's all of these plans and programmes of work really come out of an extensive programme of consultation and input from the community. 
Some people are interested in, in the circular economy. Some people are interested in, they're practically and technically minded, so they want to, do, to look more around things that change people's homes around insulation and so on. It's all about community engagement and getting people enthusiastic about responding to the climate crisis beyond things that are just a practical solution. Another person who was instrumental in egg transformation is Maggie Fife. She played a key role in the buyout and has been serving as administration secretary for the Egg Heritage Trust ever since. And although she's starting to think she'd like to retire, she still runs the accounts day-to-day of the various businesses, like Egg Electric, that operate under the Egg Trust. And she is still clearly part of the heart and soul, not only of the Trust, but the entire community. I wanted to get her perspective on the whole process, so I pedaled my rented e-bike out past picturesque fields of grazing sheep to her home, sipping a cup of tea at her kitchen table next to a small, freestanding fireplace that heats her entire home by way of pipes that circulate hot water through it and distribute it through the rest of the house. I asked Maggie how she recalled the process. We did it completely on our own. You know, there wasn't any funding available. Hmm. We raised all the money ourselves. Right. We had a very, very small... Small amount from a government organisation. Yeah. But we raised one and a half million. Right. I mean, okay, we did get an awful lot of funding, but to actually get to that point, it came from a lot of different sources. You really had to have a rock-solid business plan before any funder will look at you. Sure. And we were lucky then. We had somebody working here at the minute at that point, a very good fundraiser, Mm. and he managed to put together a whole funding package. Some of it came from... Egg residents themselves, we all paid a connection fee, which went towards the project, and the trust itself put in some money. Right. But the bulk of it came from Europe, actually. I mean, basically what we bought was a lot of derelict houses, very little infrastructure. So we had a lot to do. First of all, the first year we spent mainly trying to sort out leases for everybody that lived in a trust property or uh-huh. a, tr- um, a business or a farm. We had a lot of leases to sort out because we rang. That was kind of a lot of what we talked about during the buyout campaign was people need security. Right. If people don't have security, then they won't feel like investing in the future. So we thought that was top of the list. And also during that time, we'd done a lot of workshops before the buyout to see how folk here saw the future. And we decided that high on the list was a new shop and tea room. You probably passed the old shop Mm. that's now, it's a corrugated iron building. It didn't have power, so it had no refrigeration. It didn't have running water even. Wow. So that was high on the list. A decent shop that would pass all health and hygiene and everything else that you require. And a tea room as a meeting place. That was in a small crenellated building at the pier did have running water in there but no power uh-huh. so we the first year we built although you wouldn't recognize it now because we've just we've just rebuilt it and extended it but the building at the pier was the very first project that okay. we did which made a huge difference to people and then we just had lots of different projects on the go smaller projects like renovating some of the houses oh all manner of different things it took a lot of getting to grips with and also to, you know, forming a structure how we ran egg because all of a sudden it was all <laughs> right. so it was all brand new right. and sort of made it up as we went along. But we knew what residents wanted. 
building and rebuilding the island's infrastructure has been a huge upgrade in the quality of life for the island's residents. Lucy Conway describes what a difference it has made. Yeah, there's massive improvement over the last few years, but the population has grown, almost doubled since the buyout first happened. And visitors to the island have increased multiple times over. Hmm. So there's a lot more people coming and going from eggs than there used to be Mm -hmm. and living on the island. So yes, it was the expansion, the doubling of the footprint from the old Anlamerig to the new has been a real a real transformation. I mean, not just in terms of space and facilities, but also it's highly energy efficient. It's warm, it's light, everything works. It's a complete joy to be in. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com. On social media, you can follow us on Mastodon at transitionshow at mastodon.energy or on Twitter at transitionshow. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.